Welcome to the God's Peculiar People podcast, where we learn about the lives and characteristics of God's people. When all that was mortal of D.L. Moody was lowered into the grave on the round top at Northfield, it was felt that a mighty man of God had been taken from the struggles of earth to the glories of heaven. And weak hearts, forgetful of the history of the past, trembled as they thought that there was no successor to the great evangelist. Who can take Mr. Moody's place was the questions that Christians asked each other all around the globe. And to that query there seemed but the one sad answer. Nobody. While it is true that no one person was capable of replacing D.L. Moody, and no one for another roughly hundred years would head a religious movement as far as spread, there was, among the company that stood on that little green hill in New England and gazed, with tear-stained eyes, into the open grave, one man, on whom the famous preacher's mantle had fallen. No man knew it at the time, least of all this man himself, for his hour had not yet come. The command to go forth had not yet been spoken. But there he stood, Reuben Archer Torrey, friend and lieutenant of the dead general. Between the two men, differing in so many respects, there had for years existed a bond of love. Shoulder to shoulder, they had worked with all their strength for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And now, when the older man had laid down the standard, the other servant was to take it up and carry it on to heights undreamed of before. In the summer of 2023, we read one of the many biographies about D.L. Moody, the one specifically written by his older son. And while reading the 400-plus pages of that biography, I saw many names mentioned, sometimes just once, but others were seen again and again. We have already spoken briefly about Edward Kimball, who helped Moody see his need of salvation, and we heard about D.W. Whittle, a fellow evangelist. But we're going to take a look at one more person this year who was associated with the work of D.L. Moody. There are many others, and at some point in the future, there could become a whole series all of its own. Uh, there are so many people that he was associated with. But for now, we're going to take a look at R.A. Torrey. It's kind of interesting. He goes by R.A. Torrey and Moody went by D.L. Moody, or at least that's how we refer to them now. I'm curious, how did people refer to them back then? Did people say, hey, D.L.? <laughs> or was there another way of referencing um, Moody? Probably it was just like Mr. Moody, Mr. Torrey. Might have been more common. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about R.A. Torrey and how he and Moody became connected. That's what we're looking at today. So, Moody was a man who strove to reach people with the gospel in all the ways available to him at the time. If he had had the internet, he would have used it, but he didn't. What he had was public preaching, special meetings, he used the newspapers, he printed his own books, but what he accomplished was not done entirely on his own. As alluded to in the introduction, we're going to look briefly at the life of Reuben Archer Torrey, more commonly referred to as Ari Torrey. Now, during his lifetime, Torrey would publish over 40 books, covering topics such as the Holy Spirit, prayer, salvation, soul winning, etc. Four of his most widely known titles include The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit, How to Pray, The Power of Prayer, and The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Just as with D.L. Moody, people had differing opinions on R.A. Torrey. While looking up information about him, I came across a YouTube video that sought to prove why the video creator thought that R.A. Torrey was in hell today, based on a quote that was taken from one of Torrey's books. With every person I create episodes about, I realize that each person has faults. This podcast is not meant to glorify people only, and we will in the future try to talk more, be, you know, be a little more balanced on pros and cons in these people's lives. But what we want to point out is a reminder that if God could use this person, he can and will use you and me. 
So in this episode, I'm not going to talk much about his writings or really very much about his work as a Bible teacher, but we will look at what brought him to make a profession of faith and how Tori and Moody met. Now, a lot of this will be taken from excerpts from a book called Tori and Alexander, The Story of Their Lives by J. Kennedy McLean. So let's begin with Tori's early life. As he grew up, serious thoughts came to young Tori just as they came to other boys. Being fond of books, he was frequently in the habit of rummaging among the old volumes, which, having been put out of the library, lay in a room on the top story of the house. One day, as he sat in that room, tasting a book after book, he came upon one that belonged to his mother, and the book which described what one must do to become a Christian. He said to himself, I wonder if I could be a Christian. Then he began to read. The first thing he read, he said, I can say yes to that. He felt that he could fulfill other conditions too, and to most of them he replied in the affirmative. But finally he came to something like this, that if he became a Christian, he must be willing to do whatever God told him to do, to go wherever God told him to go, and his mind was instantly made up. He said no. Just as like as not, if I say yes to that, God will say, preach the gospel. And he had determined to be a lawyer, so as so many of the family had been before him. It was thus that he reasoned with himself. I will have to give up the racetrack, and there won't be any joy left in life. I will have to give up the card table. I will have to give up the theater. I will have to give up dancing, and life won't be worth living. There and then he settled it that he would not be a Christian. It was a solemn decision, but it was done deliberately, and from that time he refused to pay more attention to the matter, and went in for a life of pleasure. And at this point in Tory's life as a young man, he was most concerned with what he thought he would lose by giving his life to Christ. And this is still the case today. Many people hear the truth that Christ died to pay for their sins. They may be convicted of that sin, but the thought of what they would have to give up is too much for them. Think for a moment if a doctor, a coach, a trainer, or a school counselor told you that you needed to give up something to reach a physical or perhaps academic goal. What would you do? Some would not. They would not do it. But many to reach their goal would give up pizza, late nights, a group of bad friends to reach their goal. But when someone hears, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the mind often goes to the things that they will have to give up and that for them is a deal breaker. As with Tori in that moment, they see what they have as being better than what God has to offer. Now let's continue with Tori's life. At 15 years of age, he, Tori, was sent to the university. And endowed as he was with very understanding natural capabilities, he was able to keep ahead of his class without much effort. The rest of the time was given to pleasure. Card playing, gaming, dancing, and horse racing were among his favorite pursuits. Such a fascination had the ballroom for him that he would rather dance than eat, and sometimes attended dance parties as often as three and four times a week. In his own circle of society, he was recognized as one of the best waltzers. While at cards also, his skills were much above the average and with his brother for his partner, could win almost any hand, no matter how poor. He had plenty of money to spend, for his father paid his bills without asking questions, and forwarded to him whatever sums he asked for. It would have been a good thing for the young man if his father had made investigation into his methods of disposing of the money sent to him, but as such inquiry was never met, young Tory felt that there was no restrictions and acted accordingly. Under such conditions, as he himself admits, a young fellow who has not an oversensitive conscience can have a pretty good time, if anybody can in the world. Did he find it? Let Tory answer for himself. I found disappointment, he says. I found despair. I found utter wretchedness and barrenness, so I plunged more deeply into worldliness and dissipation. Until at last, still a young man, with life fairly burned out, one awful night, 
when life did not seem to be worth living any longer, I jumped out of my bed and hurried to the washstand to take out of it the weapon that would end the whole miserable business. As I fumbled around for it, for some reason or other, I could not find it. I don't know till this day why I could not find it. I still think it was there. In my awful despair, I dropped upon my knees and lifted my heart to God. I told God that if he would take the burden off my heart, I would preach the gospel. He did not know at the time, but he afterwards learned, that at that very moment, when his life seemed so black and hopeless, and when he contemplated ending it, his mother, over 400 miles away, was on her knees before God, beseeching him to save her son. At the time of his acceptance of Christ, the future evangelist was a student at Yale University. He spent seven years there, taking the BA and BD degrees in succession, and distinguishing himself in his studies, especially in mathematics. Simultaneous with his acceptance of Christ, as indicated in the quotation given above, was the resolution to abandon his contemplated career as a lawyer and become a preacher of the gospel. His out-and-out declaration for Christ, however, was not made immediately. About a year elapsed before he took a stand openly as a Christian worker. There are many people who, when they abandon their sinful life and take Christ, experience an exuberance of feeling that no pen can adequately describe. The whole world at that decisive moment seems to change. Sun shines more brightly, and the song of birds has a sweeter music in it. Dr. Tory had no such experience. The sun did not shine differently, I have heard him say, for the sun was not shining at all. I was converted in the middle of the night, in pitch blackness, without even a gaslight burning. But there came a day when he had that experience. He was working at the time in one of Mr. Moody's after-meetings in New Haven, Connecticut, when it was, as we shall see presently, that he first met that great man with whom his life in later years was to become so intimately associated. He wanted to do something to help others, and as he looked around the church, he saw a young lady whom he had known in the old worldly days. They had met often in the ballroom and in other worldly gaiety, but he had not seen her since his conversion. Have you got enough religion to go and talk with that young lady that you used to dance with? Was the question that Dr. Tory put to himself as he stood for a moment hesitating. It was a searching question. He was honest with himself, and replied that if he had not enough religion to do that, he had not a religion that was of any account. With a great deal of fear and trembling, he walked over to the young lady, and asked her to become a Christian. It took a lot of persuasion. With his open Bible in his hand, the young student sat beside his worldly friend, and talked with her for two hours. But at last he brought her to the place where she was willing to turn her back upon the world and accept Christ. Then they knelt in prayer, and the young lady rose from her knees, rejoicing in the salvation that she had just found. When they got up, she said to him, Mr. Williams has talked to me. Dr. Dodd has talked to me. Mr. Sankey has talked to me. But you have helped me more than all of them. He was beginning to feel rather proud until she went on. I thought if Jesus Christ could save you, after what I knew you used to be, he could save anybody. As Dr. Torrey left the church that day to walk to his rooms in the university, he felt as if he walked on air. It had been a beautiful day, a day in April, and now as it drew towards evening, the western sun shed a halo of glory on everything within view. It seemed the most extraordinary day he had ever seen. Earth's beauties had never been so rich, and as he walked along, his heart was filled with a new joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now the meeting at which this incident occurred was one of a series being conducted by Mr. Moody in New Haven. Tory was then in his senior year at the university, and like all other young men who reached the exalted academic stage, he thought he knew everything that was worth knowing. He knew more then than he has ever known since. He sometimes remarks with a quiet satire. They decided to patronize him. Moody, that is. They would go to hear him, and thereby show that, that although he had none of their learning and wisdom, they were broad-minded enough to bear him no grudge on that account. To his meeting, Tory and his friends accordingly went. It was an eye-opener to them and rather crushing to their pride, to discover that Mr. Moody did not seem in the least degree complimented or put out by the presence of such distinguished visitors. 
It was all the other way. As that young group of men listened to the pleadings of the mighty preacher, they felt ill at ease. They saw that the man before them, ignorant and unlettered as he was, had a power to do something they had not learned in their theological seminary, power to win souls. And that was a subject upon which their teachers had been wonderfully silent. It was rather sore on them, but the fact remained, and they were honest enough to recognize it. Waiting till the after-meeting was over, they went up to Mr. Moody and told him that they were theological students. The knowledge did not overwhelm him. Then they asked him to explain to them how to do Christian work. Come round tomorrow night, he said, before the meeting. Come down to the inquiry room, and I will come in early. The students kept the appointment, and we were there in good time. Mr. Moody entered soon afterwards. Good evening, gentlemen, he said. What is it you want? We want you to tell us how to win souls, they answered in chorus. So far as Dr. Torrey's recollection goes, he thinks that Mr. Moody gave them a few texts of scripture. But if he did, they were very few. Then he said, gentlemen, go at it. Dr. Torrey took the advice. He went at it, beginning in Mr. Moody's own meetings, and he has been at it ever since. That was his first meeting with the great evangelist. Little did either of them think, as they stood face to face, the young inquirer and the earnest soldier of the cross, that in coming years they were to labor side by side, and that their names and their work would be linked together for all time. It was a meeting apparently of little importance, but it was fraught with mightier consequences than either of them dreamed of at the time. Among the many enduring monuments which Mr. Moody left to this world, there is perhaps none so lasting as the Bible Training Institute in Chicago. To quote the words of its founder, this institute is a school where the Bible is studied under competent instructors, both of this and other lands, and training is given in methods of practical Christian work, and where students are taught vocal and instrumental music to fit them for gospel service. Every student is required each day while studying to do personal Christian work in missions, tents, homes, and elsewhere under competent supervision. In one word, the institution aims at turning out experienced soul winners. When the institution was opened on January 16, 1890, Dr. Torrey was its head. But how did Torrey, at the time not quite 30 years old, come to be selected for such an honored and responsible position? Let me explain. When the institute was established, Mr. Moody knew how much depended on the selection of a competent principal. In discussing the matter one day with a friend, the Reverend E.M. Williams of Chicago, he said, I wish I knew a man to take charge of this institute. It seems to me the largest thing I have ever undertaken, and that it is going to accomplish more than anything that I have yet been permitted to do. Then he put the query to Mr. Williams. Do you know a competent man? Mr. Williams had known Dr. Torrey in Minneapolis, and recommended him for the position in such glowing language that Mr. Moody made the remark, you make my mouth water for him. In Mr. Moody's case, action immediately followed conviction. He wrote to Dr. Torrey, inviting him to Chicago to see him, saying that he was going to make a convention and would like to talk with him. The two men were at that time not acquainted with each other. They had met once before at New Haven, Connecticut, but it was only for a few minutes. There wasn't really a, a lasting remembrance there. After that day, their ways lay in different directions, but now they were coming together to run on parallel lines till the summons to go higher came to the older man. By some mistake, Mr. Torrey got to the convention a day too early. A friend whom he met in the street told him that Mr. Moody wanted to see him personally. He called upon the famous preacher. Mr. Moody unfolded to him all of his plans and ambitions and hopes concerning the Institute, and finished up by inviting Dr. Torrey to become its principal. The decision was not given at once. Torrey felt that it was too important a matter to settle right off, or to settle by himself. He prayed over it for a few days, and then when it became clear to him that this was a call from God, he accepted the position. Four years later, the pastorate of the Chicago Avenue Church, popularly known as the Moody Church, fell vacant. A London minister accepted the charge on his being offered him, but until he was able to cross the ocean, a substitute was required. Dr. Torrey occupied the pulpit with so much acceptance that when the other minister was after all unable to come, he was unanimously asked to become pastor of the church. 
It was a great deal to ask. Dr. Torrey had upon his shoulders the responsibility of the Institute. He had to lecture there five days a week, and, in addition, was frequently assisting his brother ministers. It seemed impossible that he could undertake more, but the invitation was a hearty and a pressing one. Mr. Moody added his appeal, offering to give Dr. Torrey any help that he might require at the Institute if he would only accept the pastor of the church. These solicitations ultimately prevailed, and Dr. Torrey added the responsibility of the church to his already heavy duties. So we see Torrey became not only the head of Moody's Institute, but also the Chicago Avenue Church. I want to make clear quickly as I'm finishing up here that while I'm talking about the Moody Institute, the Moody Institute today is very different from what it was when Moody founded it, when Ari Torrey was there as its leader and then the pastor of the Moody Church. Things are very different. So I'm not promoting the Moody Bible Institute by any means, but we were just talking about how Tory became the leader of the school at that time. Uh, we might dive into more about some of the schools around the country in the future. That could actually be kind of an interesting topic. Um, how they became, how they got founded, why they were founded. That's actually a really good, <laughs> it's a really good topic. Uh, if you have uh, any questions or thoughts on that, uh, let me know in the comments. We might make a whole little mini series on um, different Bible schools uh, around the country and how they started, because we could talk about where Jonathan Edwards worked, where David Brainerd went to school, which I believe was Princeton. Yeah, we're going to say Yale, but it's Princeton. Um, talk about Bob Jones, Pensacola Christian College, um, the Moody Bible Institute. There's a lot we could talk about, so we might look at that in the future. If, if you have any thoughts or comments, let me know. If you've attended one of them and you have some insight that you'd like to share, leave me a comment. I might be able to discuss that with you. Uh, but that is it for today. So there's a lot more of the story with Tori, uh, the few years that he went and he was studying the ministry he was doing in Minneapolis, but we just didn't have time to cover all of that today. We'll do that at a separate time in the future. But I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the God's Peculiar People podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, would you please share it with a friend and leave a comment on YouTube or on the podcast app where you are listening? We would greatly appreciate it. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, be sure to leave us that information as well. Or you can send us an email at the email link in the episode description. We'll be back next week with another episode of the God's Peculiar People podcast. <laughs>